Guess what kind of interview we have for you guys today? No, not awesome. A very excellent interview. Okay, we have a rare returning guest, Alex Winter. Um, Alex, I think you and Oliver Stone have returned. Uh, oh, okay. I, think, I think we've driven I'll everyone else away. <laughs> So, Alex, you might remember him from The Lost Boys, from uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and all the Bill and Ted movies. He's also the co-star, co-writer, co-director of The Cult Favorite Freak, uh, among many other uh, movies, of course. Uh, And last time we came in here to talk about Downloaded, Mm -hmm. super interesting movie about Napster and and the rise of all that. Uh, Now, the new movie, uh, I love uh, this idea, because I'm so glad to have an expert on this. I've secretly not known anything about this, but right. didn't want to admit it until this moment. Uh, the new movie is called Deep Web, the untold story of Bitcoin and the Silk Road. It's called The Silk Road, Silk Road. a billion-dollar online marketplace for illegal it's like drugs. The eBay for drugs. The elusive ringleader known, known as, as the, the Dread Pirate Roberts. Who is the Dread Pirate Roberts? Plenty of evidence suggests that he was involved in the Silk Road. They seized his laptop while he was logged in. But I interviewed the Dread Pirate Roberts. The first thing he told me was that there are multiple Dread Pirate Roberts. There was more than one person. At least two other people, if not three. There's a huge dispute that he could have done what he did. He's not the guy that I'm reading about. People don't have a clue who Ross really is. I know, I know, I'm his mother. I'm going to say good things about Ross. Nothing has been proven at all. How did you find the server? They're not saying. EPR is serious about what the Silk Road meant. They don't really care about money. It's not about selling drugs. It is to make a political statement. Silk Road is not the first place to have sold drugs on the internet, and it won't be the last. Now, last, normally how we do the interviews is that we'll go through your life and mm-hmm. your career and stuff, but we did that last time, right. everybody should check that out. We get to cut to the chase there. Yeah, now, now I want to talk about this movie. Okay, Great. so, uh, first, what is the deep web? All right, so the deep web is is really almost like an administrative term. It, it gets mm-hmm. it gets described as this sort of dark, nefarious underworld of the internet. But really, all the deep web is is whatever's unindexed um, on the internet, whatever's unindexed online. Which means it's mostly like a flurry of code, administrative code, banking code, university code. It's all the kind of flotsam that is used to send information back and forth. It would have no business being indexed, right? So it's mostly nothing but numbers. It's mostly just what's under the hood of the Internet. Um, and it's, it is vast. Um, but you often see these kind of, like, infographics with, like, a, an iceberg where a little tip is coming up out of the water and there's this humongous thing underneath the water and it tells you, oh, my God, run for the hills. There's this unseen world. And really all it is is a bunch of code. Um, it's nothing that anyone... W- but what's happened is... Within that space, within this sort of run of unindexed code, is an area called the dark net. It's sometimes called the dark web. Um, if it's called the deep web, it's, it's being mis, mistermed. Um, I call it the dark net. Um, uh, and the dark net is an actual place. And the dark net was sort of slowly constructed over time since the beginning of the Internet by cryptographers and people interested in privacy and anonymity online, mostly the government has been constructing this. They need it, obviously. Government agents, dissidents, people in foreign totalitarian regimes that need to circumvent oversight and get information out. Um, and the darknet, you know, is substantially smaller than the deep web. It's a little corner of, of you know, this area. Um, and within that, uh, black markets also began to be created over the last few years, and the Silk Road was one of those. It was sort of the preeminent 
black market and it used Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency, so uh, which can be anonymized. It, does, it isn't anonymous by its nature. So in a nutshell, the Silk Road was allowing the exchange of goods, mostly drugs, in this dark corner of the Internet within the deep web using a cryptocurrency called Bitcoin. Uh, oh, obviously. <laughs> I don't know why. If you can say that five times backwards. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I knew that. Um, okay, so uh, let's break it down. Uh, so, who is stronger in the dark net, uh, the Riddler or the Penguin? Uh, the Joker, usually. The Joker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it sounds like Gotham. Like, I know. I, like, know. I feel like I'm going to get mugged in a, in a dark alley if, if yeah. I'm in the deep web or the dark net. Yeah. Okay, but let, in, in all seriousness, let me break it down for my simple mind to understand. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the deep web is that? So, when you say coding, like you see, I see the Google page, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a very simple page, but there's right. code behind that page, right? Right. So, is the deep web just simply the code behind the page? It's the code behind. A lot of different types of, of, of pages and um, organizations that are using uh, the Internet to move information back and forth. So it's, it's really just a run of unindexed code. It's the type of code and the type of information that does not need to be indexed. What does that mean, unindexed? It means that Google isn't tracking it. It means that you can't type into Google, you know, uh, take me to Rutgers University administrative code. I really want to have a look at that. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it won't show up because it's there, but it won't show up. Exactly, it's unindexed. Okay. It's just it, it, there's no reason to index that. It has, and mm. it's it's really just data. That's all it is. Now I understand it. <laughs> I feel much better. Okay, great. Yeah. All right, I totally get that. Now, uh, for hackers or professional coders, etc., accessing that stuff is, su I imagine, super easy. They're like. Computer, give me Rutgers. <laughs> I did both uh, Robot, Scotty, and yeah. my dad in there. Yeah, that's good. That's great. <laughs> With the, that's okay. impressive. <laughs> okay, so it, is, that tr is that roughly true? Yeah, I mean, again, there's really no reason for a hacker to hack the deep web. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's really like, you know, it'd be like a car thief um, wanting to overturn your car and examine your carburetor. I mean, it's, it's really just gobbledygook. It's not, there's nothing in there of any value. Um, the dark net, however, the, an area that's specific within the deep web is a place. It is a terrain. Uh, there are different ways to access that terrain. Uh, Tor the, uh, is one service that allows you to do that. There are, there are different ways. Um, and hackers do uh, surveil that area. So does the government. So do a number of people. Okay, so it's just not available to schmucks like me. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's not like None of this is available to schmucks like us. Okay. Yeah. So it's not yeah. like the government doesn't know where the dark net is. Exactly. The, like the government basically built the dark net. I mean, that's, a, that's the thing you have to understand. It's, uh -huh. it's, it sounds, you know, the terminology is so, um, you know, evocative and, and dark. Um, but it isn't. It's really just, it's literally like the door on your bathroom. I mean, that's the, the way I describe it. I mean, the dark net is the door on your bathroom of the internet. It's, it's a way of saying we don't want everything to be visible, just like human beings don't like being, we like, we like to wear clothes, we like to have a door in our bathroom, we like to have blinds on our living room window. Well, here's the development of privacy on the internet. And it's been developed online since the beginning of the internet. It's only now that we're at this crossroads where there's debate over where there should be privacy and anonymity on the internet. I mean, there was a huge article, I think, in CNN yesterday saying ISIS is using the deep web. I think they even mistakenly refer to it as the deep web uh, for terrorism. Deep web bad, dark net bad. And 
Again, sure. I mean, ISIS is probably doing that. You know, DARPA, an area of the government, has been tracking ISIS through all forms of the Internet, including the Darknet. Um, but that doesn't mean that, this, that privacy is bad or the Darknet itself is bad. The Darknet is mostly not used by nefarious criminals. It's mostly used by people who just want privacy on the Internet. Okay. So when you said uh, it's just a door for your bathroom, I immediately thought, no. It's not buying it. It's the Matrix. And the, and the architect. <laughs> it's sexier to say that, sure. Right. And yeah. the architect clearly has the key, and we have to find him. Yeah. Um, okay, but, but it, I, I, again, since I don't use it and I'm not a tech guy, it's hard for me to understand. When you say it's just privacy on the Internet, like, okay, so let can I, if I was savvy enough, mm-hmm. uh, could I build, what would I build? Would I build a website in the dark now? Sure, you could do that. Okay, yeah. and then... And then who would be able to access that website? Whoever you wanted to. There's a, uh, there are uh, wikis on the, uh, on the darknet that tell you how to get to certain sites. Um, if you're creating... This grew out of the beginning of the Internet, like back in the BBS Usenet era, back in the 80s and early 90s, before the web really took off. Um, there were a lot of communities on the Internet that, that began to grow that were anonymous or private communities. People just like to commune without having to expose themselves sometimes for various reasons, and sometimes it's just for having uh, pure privacy. So you had what was called the alt movement back then. You had alt you know, book clubs. You had music clubs. You had drug alt clubs back in those days too. Um, there's always been drug markets on the Internet. So there was a lot of different reasons, and then those grew and grew and grew over time. So... If you say there are, there are organizations that are using the dark, there are artist communities on the dark net. Um, there are people writing a lot of interesting stories about this. They want to be able to have a community that's just their own, and they will share those uh, web addresses amongst each other to get so that you know how to get in. Those aren't actually publicly uh, given. And so, can I just interrupt for one second there? So, to understand that better, so it's not like they had to use. Or, or maybe this, I'm, let me ask, do they have to use some sort of, do they have to be an expert on the web to like figure out how to do the crypto, crypto, all that stuff? No, I mean, the, or, no, there's, there's, right. there's a little bit of technology involved. There is. I mean, when you hear that it's super easy for anyone to have bought drugs on the Silk Road in 2011 and 12, that's really, that's really inaccurate because it was actually quite cumbersome to buy drugs on a, an anonymized hidden marketplace and it required some skill and, and, uh, like, you know, I have a teenager who's very tech adept and still can't figure out how to get into the dark net. Um, so, you know, it requires a little bit of technological skill, but it doesn't require coding or hacking or anything like By no means does it involve that. It's okay, just, so let me, let, let me break it down further. So if, uh, let's say I'm a, I'm a hippie artist. I want to join your hippie dark net mm-hmm. uh, commune that you got going on. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm not the guy who set it up. However, the guy set it up, I assume he's super tech savvy, mm-hmm. right? But if you're setting up any website, you're fairly tech savvy. Right. Okay. All I need is the code. Like, I go in and I type You see in, the web address. Yeah. I just need, like, dragon, and that's it, I'm in. Like, no. I knock on the door, no. octopus. No, no, you're not in yet. Oh, uh, I'm not in yet. <laughs> no. Okay, what, okay. No, you need, you need a, a, some service or tool that will get you into the dark net. One of those is called Tor. It stands for the onion router. And Tor uh, functions in two ways. It functions as an actual browser that you can just have on uh, your desktop. And what that browser does is it actually hides your, um, your position in the Internet. It, makes, it sort of masks by randomizing you through a number of nodes. It gets complicated. It masks where you are online, right? So that's 
part A. Tor also has another function called Tor Hidden Services, and that is its own URL. It doesn't end with .com. It ends with .onion. So you would need to use Tor rather than Safari or Firefox or something with that special web address, and then, yes, you would be in. And just those two steps would get you into the darknet. So, but if I'm going Tora, 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 doesn't the government already know the minute you download that, well, how, how is this spelled? Tor? T-O-R. T-O-R. Okay, once you do, like, mm. Tor on your computer, if mm. I'm the government, I go, <laughs> okay, let me roll up my sleeves. This son of a bitch is up to no good. Uh, I don't know why they would do that. <laughs> I mean, but if they really want to waste their time on you, looking like talking to your hippie artist friends, like you know about Japanese sculpture from sculpture in the 1930s. I mean, why would the government care? They, I mean, now the government is going to care if you like if you use the internet, public or private, in any way for criminality. The government is going to care. That's where I start to get. Um, that's where the issue lies, I feel like, because there's this, this over-focus on, oh, the dark net, oh, it's creepy, oh, it's scary. I mean, the government is rightfully, law enforcement is rightfully surveilling for criminality anywhere, in the mm. back alley of your town, on the public surface web, or in the dark net. They're not going to be picky and choosy about, about where they look for criminality. They've been you know, doing really great work in you know, ch- uh, child um, pornography, human trafficking, those types of crimes exist anywhere, public, mm-hmm. private, or surface web, and they're being surveilled. But if I you're, know, but I know the government, right? And, and uh, the government is not a friend of mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and so, if you're trying to hide something, mm-hmm. there's going to be a government agent trying to look behind that curtain. You got a bathroom door; he wants to see what you're up to. Right. Okay. So that's why I feel like if you do tour, the government, rightly or wrongly, and mainly wrongly, will be like, "No way, I'm looking in." Right. Yeah, I think that that, um, that discussion is a big part of why I made the movie. Um, that issue, that question of what rights to privacy do we have mm-hmm. in this day and age, as we move from the industrial age into the, into the digital age, into the technological age, is a huge shift in human culture, right? The biggest that we've experienced in millennia. What rights do we have and why should we have them and how do we protect them and what laws need to be changed and what laws are being breached in the the ways in which we exist in that space? And the Silk Road case, to me, hit so many different issues, just like bullseyes, so many different issues. Even if you don't look at the human aspects of this story, it gets into Fourth Amendment search and seizure questions. It gets into... Um, is privacy for human beings today a right or a privilege? You know, um, do we have privacy? What, what, where is the government overreaching? It even gets into sort of the questions of warrants. How do you, you know, search and seize, uh, say, servers or warrants, uh, whether you're enacting proper warrants or not for search and seizure, because the, the Internet crosses boundaries. Mm-hmm. So if I'm an American, but I may be using a server that's in a foreign country... Does the government have a right to pull that server, you, you know, by having some interchange with that country that, that is unconstitutional in my country? So the Silk Road really hits every single one of those before you even get into the case of Ross Albrecht and the person involved. Yeah, so I, I want to get to Albrecht in a second. Um, so, yeah, that's the hard question, right? So it, on the one hand, I hate it when the government uh, will go around our Constitution by saying, well, well, I didn't do it. I had my friends in the Australian government do it. Right? right, the five eyes and, and right. all that, NSA mm-hmm. spying, etc. On the other hand, it, I I understand the government uh, 
wanting to regulate things like child porn, etc. Mm -hmm. And if some douchebag's like, well, I didn't do it here. I did it in the Bahamas. I did it in Liberia. I get to get away with it. No, you don't, right? Right. Exactly. So, yeah. so it's a tough balance. No Com question. Completely. Yeah. It's yeah. a conundrum. It's actually a conundrum. I think. I don't think there is an easy answer. Yeah. So okay. So let's talk about Silk Road, and then we'll get to Albrecht, who is actually going to get sentenced in a couple of days. No, it got moved. It's back into May now. May twenty okay. ninth. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Silk Road is it just for drugs? And and my God, I can't find like I can't find a way to buy drugs in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm so incompetent, like, because right. I'm such a nerd, I'm, yeah. I'm more likely to find a ping pong festival. Yeah. Right? So, there's no way, like, is it for the, to people buying drugs on Silk Road had to be super savvy, right? At the beginning of Silk Road's, well, to answer your first question, the Silk Road, as far as we know, was created as this economic model, um, combining Tor with Bitcoin, which hadn't been done in an effective way before. It's very similar to Napster, where the idea is very simple on one hand, and yet no one had done it. And once it was done, the floodgates exploded. So the Silk Road has to be looked at as a technological watershed, regardless of the drugs. It, it, it created the first huge global online private community that was able to interchange without government oversight because of, this, of the cryptocurrency. So it was created as an economic model, had hardcore libertarian principles at its root, um, but it was also created um, or utilized, I should say, it was utilized primarily for drug use. And a lot of the people who were high up the food chain in the Silk Road community were not just libertarians. Some of them weren't libertarians at all. Some of them were actively wanted to use the Silk Road technology to combat the drug war. They felt that online drug services would reduce uh, harm and crime in the drug trade just by sheer logic, removing it from the street and putting it into online services. They felt that it would take drugs and decriminalize the notion of drugs and move them from the criminal space into the mental health space, which would even help people who needed more help with get reco drug recovery and getting off of hard drugs so it was a very, very, very radical idea. It wasn't just, hey, I want to you know, score some weed or some meth on the Internet. Um, it was really a political movement, and it was really founded by these principles. Whether you agree with them or not, that, it's very radical, and it worked, and it spawned dozens and hundreds of copycats and were into this sort of new movement. So that's sort of the first question. The second question is, yes, in 2011 when Silk Road appeared, no, your average user, your 13-year-old kids were not in danger of, like, you know, accidentally shifting from, you know, downloading Justin Bieber off of YouTube to, oh, let me score some Coke and overdose. It just wasn't happening. It's, it's not the way it worked. It, it was very unuser-friendly, and it really required a kind of a technological know-how to navigate, you know, even get on the darn thing, much less buy stuff and, and then have it actually show up. Um, but it did sort of like most technologies, it did evolve very quickly. And we are at a stage now where it is more fluid, where it is more user-friendly, where it is easier to access these drugs online. Is it still available? Well, the Silk Road itself was seized in 2013. But just like Napster, it was really the beginning of these technologies. It was not the end of them. It, it spawned dozens of copycats. And now we're moving, just like Napster, from a centralized-based service where you have a server in one sort of place, much easier to seize, right? Just like when Napster went to BitTorrent, you had decentralized technologies much harder to seize. These new markets, whether they're for drugs or otherwise, are becoming decentralized. So what we're going to see 
is we're not going to see the end of online drug services. We're actually at the very, very beginning of seeing online drug services. Oh, interesting. I kind of like it. Okay. And uh, you, it's, it's like a classic insurgency movement. Insurgencies know uh, that you got you have to decentralize exactly right? yeah because then it's harder to find you it's harder to hit you yeah because the establishment has collective power right right so you've got to disperse your power and then so that they can't they can't hit it in one place and that's what the internet is so good at doing which is why the internet is such a threat yeah okay so lo- some logistics because I can't help but be curious so I buy the drugs on Silk Road. There's some shady dude coming to my house and still... I mean, I got to actually physically get the drugs. It's not like I sniffed a computer. (laughs) Or do they mail it to me? What do they do? It's like eBay. It's like eBay. It's exactly like eBay. I mean, it's almost exactly like eBay. You you have, you know, the vendors themselves are rated. So if they're selling bad product, they immediately get bounced out of the system. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, uh, again... You know, and I'm not a proponent of either drug use or these services, but the fact remains that that did actually bring down the mortality rate statistics proved because the drug quality on Silk Road was so vastly higher than it was at the street level. Because, because people are communicating. It's peer review, just like peer, eBay. Right. So, and, But the actual drugs get delivered what, through the to, mail? Through the mail. Through the mail, okay. And FedEx, the Postal Service. I mean, you know, the U.S. Postal Service was a big part of the dragnet against Silk Road. You know, the IRS was a big part of the dragon against Silk Road. It wasn't just FBI and, and DEA. And let's get real. Like, okay, fine. It started as political, and I believe that a lot of, most of the people on there probably are earnestly into the <clears throat> political message that are being sent. But at some point, people are going to want to make money out of it. So, I mean, it, it must have spawned some degree of, okay, let's cash in. There's no doubt. To me, why this Silk Road story was so fascinating as a, as a, a sort of collision of, of idealism, revolutionary politics, naivete, right. and just straight-up crime, yeah. for sure. Yeah. You know, I've been around the Internet a long time, and I remember when I first uh, got exposed to the online drug communities. It was probably 1988, 89, um, and this was back in the Usenet era. And back then, it was a smaller community, so it was easier to spot who people were, even though it was anonymous. It was like, here's, okay, here's the libertarian postgraduate naive idealist guy. You know, okay, here's the anti-drug war guy. Here's the really, really sophisticated, tech-savvy, mercenary guy who's in it for the money, knows how to operate very fluidly within this service. That's what happened back then, and that's what happened in the Silk Road. When I was doing my research, and I, I really met most of the core players on the Silk Road service, some in person, many anonymously, but I, I was able to verify who they were. That's what I discovered, too. You had these sort of postgraduate naive idealist-type guys, you know, this libertarian rah-rah sort of thing. You know, you had these very ardent anti-drug war people, and then you had these, like, super sophisticated, like, who really knew how to integrate Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, with drugs, make the most amount of money, use Bitcoin like a stock where they would drive the price up, drive the price down, sell out. I mean, they were crazy sophisticated. And yet in the news, all we ever heard about was this sort of scraggly guy, Ross Ulbricht, this sort of like well-meaning, you know, kid from a good family who somehow built and ran this massive enterprise. And to me, it didn't add up. And it, it didn't, it's not to say that he's wholly innocent, or I'm trying to you know, pose him as a martyr. It just, there just was a lot we didn't know. There was a lot we weren't being told. So I, that's why I can't wait to watch the movie, because I want to see how it all unfolds. And you have this amazing access to the Holbrook family, let alone all the other people that you, that you talk to. Um, but before, last thing before Holbrook, 
the guys who were the tech savvy guys that came in for the money, they were Russians, right? Well, to be honest, I'm not totally sure. Okay. You know, there may have been some. And, and to answer your question, you know, with, without being facetious, a lot of the big markets that did survive that haven't gone decentralized yet are in Russia. Because, of course! Yeah. I, I knew nothing about it, but I knew yeah. they were Russians. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> and this, those servers are held in Russia, yeah. and there's no, it's very difficult for the U.S. to take possession of them because there's no agreement between us and Russia. So, right. you know, it's not by accident that they go running to Russia and plant their servers. Right. And Russia is an interesting combination of, like, really savvy computer code guys, et cetera, yeah. with no idealism whatsoever. Right. Ball, balls out, mercenary, <laughs> right, capitalist right. intentions. Yeah. yeah. It's super ironic that Russia has become yeah. like the standard bearer for unrestrained capitalism. Completely. Yeah. yeah. If you want to look at how a revolution goes horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. So now, uh, Andre Ulbricht, who is he, and, and how did he become the central player in all this? Well, uh, you know, my movie is really about unknowns. Uh, mm -hmm. It's about what we do and don't know. Um, and I was very specific in my film to only show what I absolutely concretely knew and then talk about what we didn't know. Um, so, you know, the film isn't a piece of advocacy for Ross. It's literally saying, here's what we do know. There's a ton of misinformation in the media. There's a lot of, like, people jumping to conclusions to sell, you know, newspapers because it's mm -hmm. more salacious. But we really don't know a lot. What we do know is that 30-year-old guy extremely bright, put himself through two full scholarships, you know, got a master's degree in chemical in mechanical engineering from Penn State. Um, according to all his friends, I mean, all his friends, just this very pacifistic, libertarian, um, not money-oriented, never had money, never interested in money, lived like a grad student even after school, sort of, you know, with roommates, almost like on a couch type guy. Mm -hmm. um, extremely tight-knit family. Uh, you know, his family's middle class. They're from Texas. And they were always together. They were together. They're one of those families that just did everything together. So when Ross was arrested... Um, it was a complete blindside for everybody because it wasn't just like, oh, what was this secret life my son was supposedly having? It was like, I've been with this guy every day for the last several years. He was supposedly running this thing. He was living with his sister during when he supposedly built and designed it. He was with his family a lot even when he moved to San Francisco. So it was really sort of a staggering mystery. Um, what was he alleged to have built? Um, it was alleged that he was the Dread Pirate Roberts. Ooh. Fine. So the Dread Pirate Roberts, about a year into the Silk Road's existence, this character appeared in the Silk Road, calling himself the Dread Pirate Roberts and claiming to be the creator, owner, and operator of the site. And the Dread Pirate Roberts, you know, wrote these manifestos on the, you know, because it was a big community. It was a very community-based organization. And mm. a lot of people were, were there predominantly for the community. Um, so people were writing sort of political manifestos, and DPR was sort of this spearheading these manifestos. So... The, the accusations against Ross were that he was the Dread Pirate Roberts, that he built and ran the Silk Road through its entire existence, right? That he was the, the overlord, the drug kingpin, which is a fundamental charge that carries the life, potential for life in prison, uh, which he was convicted of. Jesus. That he was a drug kingpin and a computer conspiracist who had built and run this massive uh, online drug marketplace that was facilitating that. But not only that, but at a certain point early in his arrest, these charges were floated that he, that they were accusing Ross of uh, engaging in murder for, murders for hire. That he had uh, instigated an attempt to have certain people within uh, the Silk Road community killed because they had 
stolen money, were blackmailing the site, were, had gone dirty, whatever. Mm -hmm. But none of those murders were ever carried out. It was super weird. And there was a lot of law enforcement who were, you know, up inside the Silk Road, as you could imagine. Turned out a few of those were very dirty and corrupt. Some of those had instigated the murders for hire. It got very messy. And then all of a sudden, about halfway through Ross's incarceration and a half a year before his trial began, those murder for hire charges were dropped. And he wasn't indicted for murder for hire at all. Um, and he wasn't charged with murder for hire. So it's been a very, very strange case, and it's been very hard to really understand exactly what he did or didn't do when you're dealing with anonymous users in an anonymized technology using an anonymized cryptocurrency. Okay, so it reminds me a little bit of the Jose Padilla case. Um, so in that case, he's an American citizen um, who happens to be a Latino that turned to Islam, and then he gets arrested, come back into the country, and the American government at the time, the Bush-Cheney administration, says, this guy's a dirty bomber. He was going to blow up uh, buildings in Chicago. And we can't, he's so dangerous, we're going to go outside the Constitution and not charge him for a while, just keeping him in indefinite imprisonment, right? Mm -hmm. And then once finally he was charged, because the Supreme Court made them charge him, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, we just made that stuff about, up about the dirty bombing. None of that is true. We're going to charge him instead with being in Uzbekistan at some point and like conspiring with some Muslims. <laughs> and they managed to convict him on that. But it turns out the government was lying about all the dirty bombing and all that stuff, which is totally and utterly made up, not him at all, right? Mm -hmm. So now when you take the element of trying to figure out who actually was the crypto dude on the internet, how are yeah. they going to... But they proved it to a jury. Is it just mainly the jury goes, ah, throws up their hands and go, ah, I can't figure this stuff out. But that official-looking dude... You know, like the old experiments where they're in the lab coats and they're like, keep pressing mm -hmm. the button, you yeah. know, to torture the guy in the other yeah, room, exactly, right? Yeah. That official-looking dude in a lab coat told me he's guilty, so I guess he is. Or am I being too unfair to the government there? I think you may be being a little unfair to the government, to be fair. I think I was at the trial, and, you know, there is a possibility that what you're saying is true. There is a possibility that there is a lot that has been constructed that we don't know about. Um, the, the defense really didn't get a chance in that trial to respond to the prosecution. And we did not hear uh, their entire case. It was just, uh, it was very elegantly um, uh, sort of barricaded from being presented. Why is that? Um, there's a lot of, a lot of reasons why. Um, the, they had expert witnesses that they weren't allowed to call. Um, there were claims, you know, from the judge that they didn't present those witnesses in a timely manner. Um, you'd really have to get into to the, okay. to the legal ins and outs of that. But, you know, the prosecution, to their credit, because this is their job, they kept it very general. Um, nobody was explained how Bitcoin worked. Nobody was explained how anonymized systems work. Um, and there was a lot of seemingly very damning evidence. Ross was caught in the uh, Glen Park Library in San Francisco, logged onto the Silk Road, onto an administration uh, account page. Um, there were many administrators, but he was logged into an administration page. Um, and on his laptop, it was claimed that they found a journal, that there were several journal, uh, entries in the journal that were on Ross's laptop that basically acknowledged his, his culpability. And the journal was really the most damning piece of evidence. So if you believe the journal, then you believe Ross's guilt. The defense has maintained from the beginning that, um, that there were many very technologically savvy people on the Silk Road, much more tech savvy than Ross, who was not a computer 
uh, coder at all. He wasn't a hacker or coder. He had no experience in that world at all. Um, some of those people, like I was describing to you, whom I met back in the day, who were extremely tech-savvy hackers, very high-level hackers, many of the vendors that I knew on Silk Road that I was talking to came from very strong hacking backgrounds and were very tech-savvy. Then you had these corrupt DEA, agent, DEA and Secret Service agents, very tech-savvy, um, who had access to the administrative codes on the Silk Road, could manipulate the Silk Road, um, and that's all indictments. Those are alleged charges, but those are indictments from the government. So you could look at this case and say, but we still don't know 100%. We still don't know what happened to this kid, this, at the time, 27-year-old kid's laptop. Did somebody hack it? You know, wore Bitcoin wallets moved around. Did somebody hack into his laptop? Easy enough to do. So we don't know. And, and again, it's not to say, the film doesn't say, let's put on our tinfoil hats and make a proclamation that all of this government evidence is BS. But let's at least examine the facts in more detail than the jury certainly got to examine them, and because there is a lot of, of unknowns here. So that would be super ironic if this incredibly tech-savvy guy who built uh, the most prominent website on the dark net got caught because he had a journal where he just wrote down everything he did. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. about as ironic as it gets. Well, it just seems incredibly <laughs> unlikely. I mean, and right. he wasn't tech savvy. I need to be really clear. He was not tech savvy at all. He was not a computer person. He was a he was a physicist. He was into math, but yeah. he needed an enormous amount of help um, to to have the Silk Road function on any level. Okay, so did he get the money? Like, is there any way of knowing? I mean, again, there, with Bitcoin, I can't even... It's hard even... to say. There was a right. Bitcoin wallet found on his laptop that contained about $18 million worth of Bitcoin out of what would have been $85 million that whoever ran that site should have had given the fees that were being charged. So mm -hmm. significantly less money. Let's put it this way. A hell of a lot of money is missing. Mm -hmm. Most of the money from the Silk Road that went to whoever was running that thing is not was not on Ross's wallet. So... And then there are questions of, of Bitcoin wallets are easy to move around from computer to computer. So is that even his wallet? Look, again, maybe it is. It's, let's say it completely is, but we just don't 100% know. I, I have this weird feeling where I feel very sympathetic towards both sides, towards Ross's side and the government side, just because I'm so flummoxed by, um, by the technology involved that I feel like, how could they possibly know that that journal was his, right? Like, right. anybody could hack into his laptop. Yeah. And then I feel bad for the government, although I shouldn't because they convicted him, but how could you possibly prove that anyone is guilty, right? Right. Like, if I'm a prosecutor and I'm an honest prosecutor, yeah. I'd almost have to throw my hands up and go, I don't know, dude. I mean, am I really going to prosecute this guy? Yeah. Obviously, some of these other guys could have hacked into his computer and put the journal in there. That's... And how the hell would we prove that? I could not agree with you more. I mean, that's basically my feeling, is that, is that it's an extreme... And I, you know, I deal with this all the time, because I know I'm not a, you know, a coder, but I know a lot about technology. And the people that I talk to on both sides who aren't the full-blown coder hacker people really are open that they don't understand. They just don't. I mean, I dealt with this with Napster. It's like when I was dealing with the RAA and the labels. They just, they just didn't understand the technology. It was completely you know, mind-numbing to them. And if you watch David Boyes when he was arguing for Napster, he was their lawyer. And if you look at those court documents, he's one of the smartest guys, maybe the smart, smartest lawyer we have, clearly didn't understand the technology at all. So, you know, you're, when you're dealing with that and these issues, I mean, I think it's a, one of the things the film is really addressing is how do you try these cases? How do you, with any degree 
of certainty, you have to take a lot at face value. Like one of the federal agents that I saw on the stand, you know, when they were questioning about Bitcoin, you know, to his credit, it's like, how else do you describe it? He's like, well, Bitcoin is basically just like, you know, the ledger is basically just like your checkbook ledger. That's just not true. It's just a hell of a lot more complicated than that. But what do you do? Do you start to break down the incredibly arcane, you know, crypto math behind how Bitcoin functions? And is the jury, what's the jury going to do with that? So really, what else could he have said? And I just think we're entering this terrain. uh, What I think is dangerous is that, you know, a lot of policy is going to get baked into place. Um, A lot of malfeasance and overreach is, is, is occurring. Um, a lot of demonizing is occurring, both from the government side and I would argue from the media side. And I think Ross's case is perfect for that. I think that when you see, even today, when you see an article written about Ross in some big publication, you know, the subheading will be, how did this good, clean kid turn from, you know, this you know, mom-loving good guy into a murderous drug kingpin? Well, A, he wasn't charged with murder, so why are we calling him a murderous drug kingpin? And B, was he even a drug kingpin? So it's, it's, you know, and that's, as far as Ross is concerned, that's the end of that guy's life, potentially. I mean, they're mm. going to appeal, they're, and they're going to keep fighting. But what if we are wrong? Like, what if, what if any part of that story is not true? Then this guy's life is in the balance, and you really have to just, you have to go from here all the way over to here to make that leap, and I'm just not willing to make that leap. Yeah, I, look, I worked for prosecu- uh, as a prosecutor for about three seconds. Uh, I did two, <laughs> two internships when I was in law school, mm-hmm. U.S. Attorney's Office and, and the local prosecutor's office in New Jersey. And so I, it's not like I don't have sympathy for prosecutors. I do. I mean, I, for a while I wanted to be a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. But if, I, if I'm on the jury, I, I don't think I could possibly convict because mm-hmm. I've got to have, uh, you know, Conviction beyond a reasonable doubt that the guy did it. But when it comes to the tech world, it's all reasonable doubt. Right. It's, I mean, look, look I, I made this prediction on the show before, and mm-hmm. I'll double down on it now. I think that there is going to be a great number of smears that come in the future mm-hmm. where people say, okay, this guy's a political opponent. I mean, let's say loosely of the government or mm-hmm. this person or that per- powerful person, right? They say, oh, I have his, uh, all the websites that he visited. Right, right, and it's going to be horrible, like yeah. sex this mm-hmm. and sex that, and you know, smear them with this and smear them with that, etc. And no one's going to know. Right, the minute you put it out there, everyone will believe it mm-hmm. because all the media will run it without questioning. Like, yeah. oh, this guy watched child porn. This guy watched this. This mm-hmm. guy watched that. But who the fuck knows? Nobody knows, right? Yeah. You could make that up so easily. Yeah, completely. So I feel like if I'm sitting on a jury. I, and maybe there are real bad guys out there. You know, we keep using the easy example of child porn, right? Right. But how do I know? How do I know you, somebody didn't frame him? Right. It seems like everything's beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, it gets or, very, or within a reasonable doubt. Yeah, it gets very, very difficult. And I think that that you know, thankfully, the way the world truly works underneath you know all the hyperbole that we've been getting, there are really smart people in law enforcement who understand how the technology of the internet works, given that they built it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, DARPA built the damn thing. Mm-hmm. So you've got people within that world who know what they're doing. And, you know, I'd say that the, that the task forces that deal with human trafficking and child pornography are pretty damn good, thankfully, as we want them to be. So, you know, I do think that, that there has a, been a steep learning curve, uh, largely for, you know, uh, state-level law enforcement to really catch up to, to the speed with the technology. Um, 
And I do, but I do think that there's there has been this this out of fear, this sort of panic stricken race to just overreach, to just say, I mean, and I'm stating the blazingly obvious here, but let's just cast a net over all of it, surveil the whole damn thing, and it's the whole needle in a haystack issue, which I think is is a ludicrous way of trying to to go about this. And I think that it's it doesn't serve law enforcement and it doesn't serve the public. I just think it's it's the wrong way to go about it. So uh, on, on Ross again, if he's got the eighteen million dollars in Bitcoin, and this goes to my lack of knowledge about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Can he cash that in and use it for his lawyers? Can he, could he have built rebuilt the dream team? Uh, you know, can, well, it was it was it's you know search, it's civil forfeiture. So all that stuff was taken immediately. It's taken immediately. It was gone. It was auctioned. It was I think uh, uh, Draper from uh, you know that VC he bought it all. Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, it went on auction and got bought up by VCs. Wow. And yeah. so it, let's say he'd. How do you cash out Bitcoin? Um, it's it's really you know uh, it's all done through exchanges. So let's say you know Bitcoin fluctuates. Let's say your Bitcoin is worth five hundred bucks per Bitcoin today. Right now, I think mm-hmm. it's worth around two sixty or something like that. Then you literally use an exchange of some kind. Coinbase is is one of the you know the better exchanges, and you you know you run through Coinbase or you can you can exchange on your own if you're more, a little more tech savvy. You can do it on your own. You can run the whole thing on your own, um, and you literally sell it out. Okay. You know, it's, it's just no different than, than pretty much in, like exchanging currency mm-hmm. from a foreign to a U.S. currency. I'm afraid that if we get further into the Bitcoin wormhole. I wouldn't. My, <laughs> my movie has very little to do with Bitcoin. Okay. So All right. Know. All right. Yeah. We, we won't be able to get out. So I'm going to ask you a question you might not be able to answer. Do you believe Ross is the Dread Pirate Roberts or not? I don't. I don't know. I mean, that is my answer. I think that's a really, you know what I mean? In this day and age, I think it takes a lot of moxie to just admit that you don't know. I mean, I think everyone yeah. is always feels like they have to fall on one line or another. And, you know, to me, the answer to the story is, is I don't believe we know. Mm. You know, the government believes he is. There's a lot of people, both in the Silk Road and, um, you know, obviously his family and, and friends that know him, who really staunchly believe that either he wasn't or he was one of several because... The Dread Pirate Roberts was a user account, and a lot of my friends in the Silk Road took it at face value that there were four or five people using that same Dread Pirate Roberts account because it worked basically 24-7, and people would give you different answers depending on what time you contacted them, and if you wanted a certain answer, you knew to only go on Thursdays at 2 because then you were going to get this version, and if you went on a Friday at 5, you were going to get you know some a-hole that wasn't going to give you an answer you wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And those were very specific high-end vendors that I knew in the Silk Road who were like, everyone knew that there were a bunch of people on, this, on the Dread Pirate Roberts account. But that doesn't you know, exclude the possibility that perhaps Ross was, this, as is argued, the main Dread Pirate Roberts. So mm-hmm. we just, I just don't believe, I, for all the research that I did, I don't know. You know, it's possible, but I, I think what you said kind of says it best. It's, it's very, very difficult with absolute certainty to know who's doing what in these territories because I do know how good hackers are, and I do know, you know, this is what something that I encounter. I think the Sony hack is a really good example of the both the extent of the threat and the level of ignorance around these threats because... I encounter more often than not people like, well, why do I care about my privacy? I've got nothing to hide. I'm like, okay, well, what if you were one of those employees at Sony that had all your information taken? What if you were one of the people who were on Anthem Blue Cross who had all your medical records blitzed out into the, into the sphere? What if you were part of the Target hack? 
you know, what if your kid was part of the fappening and their naked photographs were being sold online? Like, mm -hmm. do you really not care? Like, that doesn't bother you? So I think that that's a really, really um, unacceptable answer to the questions moving forward. I think that's got to be put aside. And I think that what the Sony hack showed us was that, A, we are at risk. We are at threat. And yet our operational security sucks. You know, so I don't believe that it took high-level international espionage to penetrate the Sony network. You know, with my understanding of hacking, you know, I don't think it's a nice thing to do. I don't, I don't you know, I think it's a horrible hack. I think what happened with people was, was horrendous. But it was not that complicated from a technological standpoint. Because most of the operational security for both the public sector and the corporate sector, it sucks. Mm -hmm. And so I think that you, you can't discount the reality when you're dealing with cases like Silk Road and stuff that hacking into your computer, meddling around with it however you want, is just far easier than people want to accept. Because I think it's terrifying to realize that, yes, I could go on your computer fairly easy. I could put a keylogger on your computer that identifies every single keystroke you make. I could turn your camera on and off whenever I want. I could have your microphone on 24 hours a day and record everything you're saying, even if you think your computer is off. And... Those hacks sell for not even a lot of money on, on the internet. I mean, there are 15-year-olds doing hacks like that. Okay, last thing. Um, I, I don't believe the government knows what it's doing. <laughs> okay, and t tell me if this is true or not. Or maybe they're just, it's the long con. Because there's no way this Sony hack was from North Korea. It could be the easiest thing in the world. North Korea didn't do it. They can't flush the toilets, okay? <laughs> it's like they just executed someone else, they're, their top defense... Chief, we just found out about it this yeah. morning, and uh, they blasted him with anti-aircraft gun from 100 meters. I mean, they're they're not they're not they not they not, they couldn't hack in to their own heads. Okay, <laughs> so we got Joffrey running that place. So it's it's someone else, but the government's telling me it's North Korea. Okay, ISIS has Twitter handles. I mean, if the if the government agents had a modicum of self-respect, they could trace it back to where ISIS is and figure out where the head is, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. Yet, Al-Qaeda and ISIS have been tweeting for decades, right? right? Yeah. And, and putting out messages for decades. So is it that the government knows all this stuff, but for whatever reason just won't act on it, won't tell us who actually did the Sony act, uh, won't tell us that secretly they've killed everybody in ISIS because they traced their Twitter accounts back, yeah. right? Or they don't know. Yeah, I mean, my answer is going to is the same one I gave you before is, is, and that's probably what's most frustrating to everybody is we don't know. We don't know. I mean, one of you know because and to be fair again, I think one thing that happened with Snowden that was interesting is is it democratized or popularized the notion of of uh, intelligence, mm -hmm. right? So suddenly you didn't have to read the Le Carre books to go, oh wow, the world is a really complicated place and people aren't always telling the truth. Right. So, I mean, it's in the, you know, there are some times when for national security it is in the government's very best interest not to tell the truth, mm -hmm. you know, and wake up. That's, you that's, know what? In the middle of the know? conversation, I came to a conclusion. <laughs> yeah. OK. No, no, no. I know. <laughs> but like that's they use that to make it seem as if like, oh, we know, but we can't tell you because right. we're really smart. Right. But we just saw the Seymour Hirsch piece, which is yeah. at least been proven in part by right. the NBC yeah. News corroborations. Right. Yeah. 
and which shows that no, the government, the CIA didn't even figure out the goddamn courier, right. which wasn't that sophisticated to figure out, right? Okay, there was yeah. no courier. The Pakistanis were keeping him as a prisoner. Just a guy came in and said, ah, "We're from Pakistani intelligence. We got him. He's in Abbottabad. Give me the twenty-five million bucks." Right? Yeah, there, I totally agree with you. There, I mean, my personal opinion is is I think what you're saying, which is that the reality of the reality is that it's mostly like the DMV. Yeah, it's mostly, exactly. It's yes. mostly this really cumbersome, bogged-down uh, bureaucracy that barely functions. And I do agree with that. I, I think that one of the funny kind of similes for that is that when Kubrick started to make what became Dr. Strangelove, he spent a great deal of time trying to make it as a drama. But mm -hmm. the further he researched how the nuclear arms race worked, the more he dug into what was going on, it was, it was a farce. He was like, I can't make this as a drama. This is, a, this is high comedy. And I do think that's closer to the truth, unfortunately. Yeah, so that's why, you know what, I now have reached the final conclusion <laughs> on the Ulbricht case. Okay. I, 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 partly for the reasons I said about it's establishing yeah, uh, that he's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt is near impossible. Mm -hmm. But also based on this conversation we just had, I would vote not guilty. Mm -hmm. uh, not having served on the jury or, right. or you know, or any of that. <laughs> or knowing anything about it whatsoever. Oh, that's right. right. But uh, in this general conversation, because I don't believe the government is savvy enough to tell me for sure mm -hmm. that it was him. Right. Okay. I believe that they're bumbling bureaucrats mm -hmm. and they like to pretend they know everything. Oh, yes, well, we had uh, that tracked and traced. Uh, to the, and I know that the right. journal in his laptop was really his, right? right. I don't believe you. I don't yeah. believe you. I mean, until you get me al Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS, because yeah. you traced a messenger from Twitter to. ISIS headquarters mm -hmm. and then to Baghdadi, et cetera. Until you get Baghdadi, Ulbricht's got to walk. Right. Okay, because until yeah. then, I don't really believe you yeah. that you know what you're talking about in the tech world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, I sat in the courtroom and I was, I, as many of the journalists, I mean, that were there with me that knew the case, you know, as well or better than I did, we were all kind of breathless when it ended. Like, really? That's it? That's all they have to say? And that's seven convictions and the guy faces life in prison? It, it felt very abrupt. Mm -hmm. All right, well, check out the whole movie so you guys can see to get the whole story and don't make snap judgments like me. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Deep Web, the untold story of Bitcoin and the Silk Road. Alex Winter, yeah. as always, a pleasure having yeah. you on. Great conversation. Thank really you so much.